Well, good morning and happy Easter. Happy Resurrection Day to all of you. So glad that you've come. It's a great Sunday to be in the house of the Lord, isn't it? So glad that you're here. Let's pray and ask the Lord to meet with us now. Father, we thank you that we have the privilege of remembering this significant day in the church calendar year, reflecting on the beauty of what this Resurrection Sunday means. And so I pray that you would give us grace to hear from you, to know what it is that you want us to hear today from your word. So come now, please, open our minds, open our hearts, that we might know what it is that this day is all about. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The text that I'll be in today is Acts chapter three. If you brought a copy of God's word, love to have you turn in that passage or maybe grab an electronic device and make your way there. This last couple of weeks, I've had a number of people ask me, how's my NCAA bracket going? And uh, I've told them that I, I'm not into the whole bracketology thing. I just, I just, I never have. And I started thinking, why, why is that the case? Doing a little self-evaluation. At one level, my mother-in-law is really good at it, and I just don't want to compete with her. So it's just, that's, that's one reason. She got all four of the final four right. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, check it out. Um, <laughs> hashtag mother-in-law, you know, so. <laughs> but, there's, but there's another reason. I, um, I, I like rooting for underdogs. Like, I, I love to see uh, number one seeds beat. I just, I love to see that happen. And so, uh, I think of things that I like in life and of favorite moments in sports. I think of the 1980s, the um, U.S. hockey team, remember that, the U.S. Olympic team? Some of my favorite movies are movies like Rocky, you know, Yo Adrian, you know, <laughs> Hoosiers, Karate Kid. Blind side. I, I, love, I love basketball endings that are just like surprising and shocking. Like when I was in the high school, uh, 1985 Villanova over Georgetown, one of the greatest comeback stories ever. Or my all-time favorite is 1983 NC State when uh, coach Jimmy Valvano runs like a crazy man onto the court. You remember that, some of you? If, if not, here. It's down to seven seconds. You can see the time. Wittenberg. Oh, it's a Some of you remember that, remember that moment? It's just incredible. So I, I love underdog stories. I love surprising endings. And for that reason, I'm just not real good at the whole bracketology thing. For me, there's something really awesome when the unexpected happens. And, and frankly, in a much more significant way, that's what this Sunday is all about. Something unexpected happened in human history. The, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was surprising, and it was a powerful moment that changed the course of human history. No one anticipated the empty tomb. But then, according to the Bible, the surprises don't stop there. The disciples begin spreading the message of the gospel, and there were other surprising and stunning moments of victory and deliverance. And the story that we're looking at today, Acts chapter 3, is one of those surprising stories. The kind of story that if you were in the middle of what this story is about, you would have remembered this and told your grandkids about it. I was in the temple the day that this happened. But you need to know that Acts 3, and the story we're going to look at today, is not only important because of its surprising nature. Acts 3 is important because of its connection to the resurrection of Jesus. 
In other words, the surprising victory of the resurrection then led to a surprising healing in the Temple Mount. And in the middle of all of that is a message that we need to think about and consider today. So let's first walk through the story of what happens in Acts chapter three. The book of Acts is the story of the early church. It is the record of how the church began after the crucifixion of Jesus, after his ascension, after the mass conversion of thousands of people at Pentecost, Acts 3 records the first miracle that one of the disciples did. And its placement in the narrative of the book of Acts is not just a record of what happened. This miracle is sending a message, loud and clear. Gotta see what that message is all about. Look at verse one. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So you got two characters, Peter and John. They are close companions of Jesus. They were friends, business partners, even before they became disciples. They were really known as the two pillars of the disciples. In fact, when Jesus is arrested, when he's brought to the high priest's house, it's Peter and John that follow after him. So these men are part of the inner circle of Jesus. They go up, it says, for prayer at the ninth hour. There are three times of prayer. The third was the time when the daily sacrifice was given, and so as a result of that, there were many, many people. This was the most popular hour for people to come to the Temple Mount in order to participate in prayer. Because of the fact that there were so many people who came to the Temple Mount for prayer, it was a prime place for those who lived off the generosity of others to place themselves. In other words, if you were disabled and you had no other way to survive, you needed to be at the temple because religiously minded people, especially in that particular time period, who were convinced that the only way that they were going to be reconciled to God was by their good works, those people seeing people with disabilities would naturally be more inclined to give them money than just someone out in the marketplace. And so what we have is Peter and John on their way up to the temple for the time of prayer. Verse two, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to seek alms of those entering the temple. Now just to give you a a scene of where this is, see that outer gate, that big one in the uh, second courtyard? That's the gate beautiful that led into the court of women that then led into the court of the Jews and the outside court was the court of the Gentiles. And so it's at this large gate called the gate beautiful because it's so large, it's so prominent, that's where this lame man was laid. And notice about this lame man that he was lame from birth. He had to be carried to the gate. And if you were to look over in Acts chapter 4, you would find that he is over 40 years old. So his entire life, someone every day got up, took him to the gate, laid him there, and at that gate he would say to people as they passed by going into the temple, something like alms for the poor or alms for the lame, alms, alms, alms. He made his living on the generosity of others, and there was no other life for this man. This was his future. Verse three, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. Apparently, as people are just filing into the temple, probably had his head down, he's just putting out his his cup or his pan or whatever it is, asking for alms just not even aware of the number or the personal reality of people who are going into the temple. And Peter says, look at us. 
In verse five, it says he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. So he pulls his head up, he looks at Peter and John, and then the text says this, verse six. Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. Here it comes. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, remember that statement, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk, verse seven. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. Can you imagine this moment? This man has never stood a day in his life. Took him by the right hand, raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Can you just imagine, just use your imagination, just let it run wild for a moment. Imagine what this would have been like to witness that a man who's over 40 years of age is picked up, and as he's being picked up, he leaps into the air and then finds himself standing I mean, imagine what that moment must have been like as he's maybe looking at his feet and then he realizes he can walk and he's never walked a day in his life and so he's walking and he's running and he's running around. He's probably pulling a Jimmy Valvano moment, right? He's kind of running around and not knowing what to do, making all sorts of a commotion and, and, and praising God and, and making all sorts of noise in his joy as to what had just happened to him. And in verse nine it says, and all the people saw him walking and praising God. So, you know, it's a prayer time. It's not necessarily super rambunctious, and there's this guy who's just running all over the place and praising God and making a commotion in verse 10, and they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple. So if you're in the temple and you see this, you're looking at this guy and you're distracted by all the noise, and you look over, you see this guy, and you're like, isn't that the guy who sits at the beautiful gate? He's, look at, he's, he's walking. And what you're gonna think And the question you're gonna ask is this, how did that happen? They were all filled, verse 10 says, with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Peter then uses this opportunity for a message. So that's the story, here's the message. The point of this narrative is not the healing. The healing is designed to lead to this particular message. Verse 11, and while he clung to Peter and John, so this guy was clinging, was holding on to them, he was so excited about his healing, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. Remember that picture I showed you before, the larger courtyard area, there's kind of a porch or a a colonnade on the exterior of the Temple Mount, that's called Solomon's Porch. It was often a gathering place where people would meet. The early church met there, Uh, Jesus, Uh, gave a sermon there where he uh, said that his sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me, that's from John chapter 10. And so Peter gathers all these people to himself. This crowd gathers, no doubt, because they wanna know what happened and how was this man healed. Verse 12, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we had made him walk? So they come and they wanna know, how did you do this? How did this happen? Peter immediately deflects the attention from off of himself and then he delivers the message. That was the reason that he healed the man in the first place, verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus 
whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. So what Peter does here is he links the healing of this man to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Peter healed the lame man in order so that he would have the platform to preach about the power of the resurrected Christ. Now notice how candid Peter is about the tragedy of Jesus' death and their collective culpability. So they just come to hear how this man was healed, and Peter, frankly, gets in their grill. He's very candid. He's very blunt with them. He, he says things like this, whom you delivered, whom you denied, you asked for a murderer, the one you killed. Can you imagine how that was received? I mean, it's kind of a killjoy sort of message, right? Verse 17 of chapter 3, later on Peter will say this, I, I know you acted in ignorance, but He's talking to them this way because he wants them to understand the tragedy of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. What's more, Peter uses stunning words to describe Jesus. He calls him the glorified servant of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, meaning he had been honored by the God of the Jews. He calls him the holy and righteous one, meaning he was without sin, He was completely innocent. He was without guilt. In other words, he should not have been crucified. And then, and finally, Peter says, you killed the author of life, which is tantamount to saying, do you know what you did? You killed the one who made life possible. You killed the one that sustains all of our lives. All these phrases are meant to be taken together in order to communicate the seriousness of what happened on the day called Good Friday. Jesus Christ was crucified because the Jewish leaders not only disliked his teaching, but also because they feared that Rome would take away their entire nation. They whipped the people up into a frenzy. They convinced Pontius Pilate that this Jesus problem needed to be taken care of. Pontius Pilate colluded because he didn't want Rome to take away his military and governmental post. And what Paul wants, or Brother Peter wants these people to know, is that Jesus was the sinless, innocent son of God who is the author of life. He's not a common criminal. He wasn't a blasphemer. He was God in the flesh, and they killed him. You can imagine there's a little bit of quiet hush over that crowd. And then if that isn't bad enough, Peter wants them to know one more thing about Jesus. He says this, verse 15, you killed the author of life, and then he says this, whom God raised from the dead. I wonder if that moment people started looking at each other. It's like, cue the music. Right, he's alive, right? So it's not only that you killed the author of life, but he's alive, like right now, alive. If the one who was crucified was really the son of God, and if he really was alive, then those who were guilty of his death were in big trouble. This is what Peter wanted them to hear. And then verse 16 follows it, and he says this, and his name, Jesus' name, 
the, the resurrected Christ's name and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man perfect health in the presence of all of you. What, what is he saying here? You know what he's doing? He is linking the resurrection of Jesus to the healing of this lame man in the temple mount. In other words, the power of the resurrection has now been applied to this man in his healing, and if they doubted the power or the legitimacy of the resurrection of Christ, they could not doubt the power of a lame man now walking. And the effect is this. If you believe he was healed, then you ought to know Christ is really alive. You want to know how this man was healed? It's by the resurrected power of Christ, who by the way, is alive, and by the way, you killed him. And that's why he calls them to repent later on. He calls them to repent, to turn. He calls them to realize what it is that they had done. So he leveraged the healing of the lame man to proclaim the message of the gospel, and Acts chapter 4 tells us that 5,000 people put their faith in Christ on that day. This is not the only place where Peter makes this kind of statement. Acts 4 tells us that Peter and John were hauled before the council of the religious leaders. And here's what Peter said. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, we've heard that before, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby or by which we must be saved. You know why there's no other name under heaven? Because there's no one else who blew the door off the tomb. There's no one else who was raised from the dead. There was no one else who has power over the resurrection, and there's no other name that could have raised somebody from their lameness and made them whole. The message that Peter gives, the message that he identifies as to the reason for this miraculous healing is why Easter Sunday is so passionately celebrated, because there is power in the resurrection. Something surprising, something significant, and something powerful happened on Easter Sunday. Let me connect all of this and bring it into our world and why does this story matter? Why have I chosen it? What is the meaning here? Why, why in Acts 3 is this first miracle listed and why is this day celebrated so significantly? Let me give you three reasons. The first is this, is the resurrection makes the broken whole. What you see in the story is a man who has brokenness and the resurrection, resurrected power of Christ makes the broken whole. Take a big step back. The message of the Bible essentially is this, that our world is really messed up. And do I need to convince you of that? The message of the Bible is that something's wrong with the world. Every funeral you go to, there's just something outrageous that you could love someone and then have them just not be there anymore. 
And what's more, you know, as you think about your own soul and what happens inside of you, you know there are things that you think about and thoughts that come in that that you're glad no one else ever knows about because there's just times when you're like, where did that come from? Just embarrassing, awful, or or desires, or things that you say, or actions that you just want to stop, and sometimes you can't. And that comes from what the Bible calls sin, or think of it as the brokenness of the world. It means that the created order is broken, that people are broken, the world is broken, the culture is broken, everything is, and it's because of the effects of sin in the world. The Bible begins in Genesis telling us the story of the Garden of Eden, and when sin came into the world, and sin by definition means our desire to rule our own lives and have God not tell us what we should do, and even from a very young age, we resist anybody telling us what we should do, and that is the condition of humanity. It began in the Garden of Eden, and when sin came into the world, death came as well. That sin and death are very closely linked. Sin is the cause, death is the effect. So the reason that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so important is this, that when Christ conquers death, it means that sin has been defeated, because sin is the root of death. So that if death has been defeated, then sin has been conquered. It means that in the death of Jesus, The cross inaugurates the beginning of the possibility of the restoration of what's broken and into being made whole again. It means, the resurrection means, that the death of death has begun. That's what it means. See, part of the mission of redemption is to save people from their sins. We'll talk about that in a moment more of what it means to be restored internally in terms of the guilt that you feel and to be in a right relationship with your creator. But another part of the mission of redemption is not just to save people from their sins, but it's also to restore all of the negative things or repair all of the negative things that have happened because of sin. Fractured relationships, crimes against one another, Every kind of illness and disease. Can you imagine waking up in, in an environment, and the Bible calls this the new heaven and the new earth, where there's, there's no more fractured relationships? You never have to wonder what people mean by what they say. You never have to interpret a text. They put a smiley face. Do they, they mean it? You never have to wonder about a Facebook posting or what someone really means or what is this picture really all about? You don't have any broken relationships. There's, there's all harmony. There's never any wrong desires. There's never any disease. You never have any issues in terms of, of, of a lack of wellness or anything. That Everything that has been broken has now been fully repaired. And the Bible calls that paradise. It calls it heaven. It calls it the new heavens and the new earth. That there is coming a day when Jesus will remake the world and his followers will live in that world with no sin and no sickness and no brokenness and no death. So this day is about the inauguration of the hope of that coming day. And when you live in a broken world with a broken body, with broken motives, you need this day to be reminded that the world and the sin and the brokenness has not spoken the final word that Jesus Christ does in the end. The resurrection of Christ (laughs) makes the broken whole. There's a day coming when Jesus will restore everything. And in the joy for that moment, this man was restored to health. It's a a harbinger of what is yet to come. The resurrection makes the broken whole. Here's the second thing. 
There's a a negative side to this. And that is that the resurrection makes unbelief treason. Some of you in your business careers, you've had to get on someone's case and you may have walked away from that and told a colleague, well, how'd that go? It's, well, it was a come to Jesus meeting. Interesting, isn't it that we use that term? It's a come to Jesus meeting? What does it mean? It means that we're really candid, we're really clear. We're like calling somebody to wake up and, and turn because that's what the resurrection is. It's a come to Jesus meeting that there is a problem here for those who reject the authority of the Son of God. And here's why. If Jesus was raised from the dead, and if he did conquer death, and if he really is the Son of God, then then not believing in him is not just a religious decision. To not believe in Jesus isn't just like, well, I'm gonna not believe in that, but I'm gonna believe in this, as if you're choosing belief between two equal things. If Jesus is all that he claimed that he is, then unbelief in him is actually treason. And it comes with grave consequences, which is why Peter is so blunt in Acts chapter three, because Jesus is in fact not just another prophet or a purveyor of a religious system. He is the creator of the universe. He's the author of life. He's God in the flesh. He is the one before whom all humanity will stand and he will be their judge. And there will be no need for you to testify testify on behalf of yourself because Jesus already knows everything you've ever done, thought, or where you've been all your life. Can you imagine standing before that kind of judge? There's no need because he knows it all. And he knows the stuff you don't think he knows. See, the murder of Jesus, the rejection of him as a Messiah, in effect means that a person chooses to reject God's rule in their life. Unbelief is treason and dangerous when the one whom you are rejecting is the Son of God. So the resurrection, on the one hand, was joyful news to the followers of Jesus, but it was a frightening reality to those who had rejected him. So the the empty tune sends a strong message and a clear warning. It's this, Jesus is alive and he's God, and without him there is no way to be forgiven, and rejecting him is more than not just believing. Rejecting him is dangerous treason against the holy, righteous God of the universe. That's what the resurrection means. And then finally, here's the beautiful hope of what this passage tells us, and it's this, that the resurrection makes salvation possible. This, this last point is why this church exists. It's why I am a follower of Jesus, why I'm a pastor, why I believe the Bible. It's why I think that what we're talking about and singing about what you heard in these testimonies are truths that can change your life. The good news about the resurrection is that the empty tomb means that the death of Jesus provided the means by which our sin could be forgiven, by which sin could be conquered. And because death and sin are so closely linked, then the defeat of death signals that sin has also been defeated. So what happens on Good Friday is that Jesus provides a sufficient sacrifice. He, a sinless human being who's also God in the flesh, dies on the cross so that God can pour out 
our payment on him so that we could receive forgiveness that we didn't deserve in the same way that he received punishment that he didn't deserve. And the resurrection of Christ gives evidence that that atonement for sin counted and it worked and sin no longer holds him because the grave no longer holds him. The same name that raised that man up and gave life to his legs is the same name by which people are saved from their sins. And so the hope and the power of the resurrection are the same, that those who put their faith in the name of Jesus can be forgiven. For me, you know what that sounded like? It sounded like at a pretty young age, understanding that I was a sinner. No one had to convince me of that. I knew that straight up. I also knew that there's nothing I could do to save myself. I had tried, and the reality is I needed something fixed inside of me that I couldn't get to. The Bible says we need to be born again. If you're not a follower of Jesus, what it means is that coming to faith in Christ is that you know that you're a sinner and that you in effect say, Christ, I need you to come in and to be my savior and king. I'm done trying to run my own life. I'm giving up on me, and I'm putting all my faith and trust in you so that if you were to stand before God and he were to say, why should I let you into my kingdom? The only answer is because your son died for me. That's the only reason why. And you promised in your word that he'll apply his blood to my account, and I've received and put my faith in that account. I've trusted in your promise that you'll forgive me because of his work. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ, and that's what the resurrection guaranteed because it signaled sin has been conquered, the grave has been defeated, and God's promise to those who would follow Christ are in full effect if you will just come. That's the message, and that's why Peter healed the man, and that's why it's in Acts chapter three. So listen, I love, I love Cinderella stories. I I love underdog moments, I love comebacks, I love those kind of Jimmy Valvano sort of moments, but what we're talking about here is so much greater. The power of the resurrection is that Jesus can give hope to hopeless people in stunning and surprising ways. Every person you heard from this morning in terms of those testimonies were surprised by how good God was to them in cleansing them and helping them or delivering them. It is the stunning display of God's grace that makes the resurrection and the celebration of it so marvelous and so powerful. And my prayer for you, everyone who hears this message today, all of you who are in this room or in another, is that you will be brought from death to life by placing your faith in Jesus, that today would maybe be a surprising day, that Easter would be your story, a day when you were raised from death and you were given new life. And my hope is that today you would say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Come, Jesus, and be my king today. That's why this story's in the Bible. That's why this day is so important. That's why we are here as a church, and that is the message that we believe every person in the world needs to hear and receive, because there's no other name among men by which they can be saved, because there's nobody else who was raised from the dead. And that's the beauty of Easter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that there is cleansing and there is power in the name and the blood of Jesus. 
And I pray that you would now use what we've heard and what we're about to sing as a way of sealing the truth that there is no other name by which we can be saved except the name of Jesus. And so, in the quietness of even this moment, I pray that you would draw people to yourself like you did last Easter, like you've done many, many Sundays, that you would draw people unbelievably powerfully to become a follower of yours, to give up on their own way of living and say, God, I'm done with me, I'm so done with me. I need you, Jesus, so come, be my king, be my savior, I believe in you. Thank you for the power and the beauty of the resurrection. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.